0: How's life for you? How's the wildfires in the, your part of the country? How's global warming in your part of the world? What's the lemonade stand scene like in your neighborhood? I have to be honest. I don't know why I said that, the honest part. Of course I'm honest. Um, I wish we had a better ice cream truck scene at my house. I think, I think what they do in L.A. is they just go to the parks and they stay there, which makes sense within the framework of capitalism. But... I still wish there was a few that drove, that went by our house at all. Anyway, what is your favorite hot weather food? What's your favorite food to eat after you've done a DNA test? This podcast is about DNA testing, and more importantly, about the results that happen when you do a DNA test, uh, no matter what kind of food you ate, before or after. Okay, I need to stop talking about food. Maybe I'm hungry. Welcome to Everything's Relative Podcast. I'm Eve Sturgis. We are exploring the results that thrust people like you and me or someone you know into an existential crisis and maybe a family crisis. Secrets are coming out of the woodwork and I'm here to talk about it. If you have been following me on Instagram or Facebook at Everything's Relative Podcast, last week you may have seen a post I threw up and it said I have seven spots left for 2023 or something like that. Contact me if you want to share your story. So hey, I just want to touch base with everybody. You know I've been here all along, right? Don't I mention contacting me at the end of every episode with my email address? Where have you all been? As soon as I said that there were seven spots left, it was like it was like a wild tidal wave stampede of messages knocked me over from like every platform. Thanks for coming in. People were on Instagram, people were coming in from Facebook, people were emailing me. Like now you want to talk? I'm at the end of the season and now you want to talk? It was honestly a really delightful surprise. Uh, I got way more than seven inquiries. I opened up my calendar as much as possible for August. I still couldn't fit everyone in. I'm so sorry if we couldn't make it happen. I'm still debating whether or not I can make it work. Uh, basically arguing with my own resources and like my own personal boundaries. I do want to have everyone, but I am only one person. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Meg Thomas is my guest for today. She is one of those people that reached out. In fact, folks, you can safely assume, except for one or two people, every episode for the rest of the season in 2023 is someone who reached out during this, uh, the amazing reach out of summer 2023. So Meg reached out and she got the very first spot. So I was barely even prepared for her. I spent the whole weekend responding to people about getting them scheduled. And anyway, so Meg hopped on. She was gracious about my sort of flustered confusion about who she was. So many people, especially if they contacted me on Instagram, you know, their Instagram handles aren't their names. So then they would schedule a podcast session with me under their name. But so... Anyway, you get it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Meg explained it right away who she was. I figured it out. She is the host of a really cool podcast called Emotional Expedition. I will let her explain what it's all about. Uh, But she talks about her DNA discovery and like how it fits into this project of hers and where she finds herself in our community. Anyway, you listen to Meg and I. We'll reconvene when it's over, okay?
1: Awesome. Meg Thomas. I'm so happy to meet you. How are you today? I'm
0: good. I'm good. It's so hot where I am. Where are you?
1: I'm in upstate New York. So we're about to have a heat wave this week, but it's like probably high 80s today. Okay. Yeah. still. you're in California, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're in Los Angeles. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Where in upstate are you?
1: Syracuse.
0: Okay. I've heard of it.
1: Yep. (laughs) Cool. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. not it's not New York City it's closer to Canada you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. very different than New York City that's usually the biggest thing we get asked is like oh you know how close are right. you to the city I'm like five six hours you know very so. very far yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. we
0: lived out, I lived up out like outside the city a little bit kind of close to Newburgh um I don't know if you know where that is and People would say, like, I'd be like, oh, well, I live like up, you go up the you know, the six and then you take the GW and people like, oh, upstate. And I was like, no, not upstate. <laughs> like not just
1: north of here. Yeah, yeah. just
0: like yeah. an hour. It's Slightly so north. Yeah. So yeah. different when people say upstate, what they mean. Cool. Yeah. So tell me what and how you come to this community um and coming, coming into this, um, because yeah. I feel really lucky and and I guess like humored um because so many people signed up um when I put out that call for yeah. signups. So everybody signed up and it was really it was like within 24 hours. So I have no idea who's
1: who and Oh, I love it. Well, I wasn't going, you know, I was three hours ahead. So what happened was I woke up in the middle of the night to this like massive lightning storm and thunderstorm. And my dog was going crazy. So normally I would have never like picked up my phone and got on Instagram, but I just, he wasn't calming down. And so I turned to my phone. I'm on Instagram. The only post I saw was your post. And You were somebody I had on my list of people I wanted to pitch to and where I wanted my story. And I'm like, no, like it's midnight. I'm like half awake. I am not sending her a message right now. I put my phone down and I just hear a message. Do it now. Do it now. And I was like, okay. And so I get my phone back out and like try to write to you. I am the host of a podcast called The Emotional Expedition. I've been doing this podcast for about a year and it's based on like Brene Brown's work of Atlas of the Heart of like identifying, labeling the emotion. So every other week I label an emotion and on the opposite weeks, I have different interviews with people where sharing different modalities of how we can move Emotions and trauma through the body. So, this is really my sweet spot, which is like, it's, it's, we need the language, we need the foundation, but we also need the ways to move it through the body. I do therapy. I'm, you know, very pro therapy. I do therapy every other week, but I also do yoga and teach Uh breath work and teach yoga and meditation where it's like the therapy only gets me so far. I have to move some of it. And my greatest test was finding out my own journey of discovering recently that I was donor conceived. Uh And so it took me, my podcast has been out for, you know, 49-ish episodes, something like that. And it took me to about episode 45 before I was ready to share my story. I share all my stories, but I hadn't shared this one yet. I was still in the process of my own healing journey. And I feel really strongly about that, that I'm not somebody to, I always want to share because I believe that I am one of those people here on earth that are meant to share their vulnerabilities and insecurities and all of that and stories and help people not feel so alone. But I also believe in doing it from an empowered place. and the beginning wasn't very empowering. The beginning was messy. And some people can share from the mess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like Glennon Doyle, Elizabeth Gilbert, like they can share from that direct from the wound. I need it to be like a little bit scabbed over to, (laughs) to be able to share from, to get there. So So, yeah, that was how I came into being. And then the next morning when I woke up and went on Instagram, you're like, spots were full. And I was just like, I'm so glad I listened to my intuition in that Mm -hmm. moment because Mm -hmm. I would have missed out. You would have missed
0: out. You would have missed out. Oh, good. Well, I'm so glad to have you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we talk so much in the community, you know, in the communities and then also in in outside outside the DNA discovery communities. it's becoming more and more of a conversation about like where trauma sits in our bodies. And we're telling everybody to read the body keeps the score. Yeah. right. And Mm -hmm. somatic therapy um, is sort of like a rising. It's always been around, but like it's just become people People are are talking about it. Yeah. Discovering it. it and talking about it more and more. So that makes so much sense that you would be one of the people that's helping like bridge that gap
1: because we can all read body keeps the score some of us I mean it was it's a hard read I was gonna say we may or may
0: not actually recommend that book yeah for different reasons uh but it's an easy it's an easy one to reference
1: yes and there's so much truth in it like so much but it was one of those that it took me you know reading I would read 10 to 15 pages a day And like just try and integrate it first thing in the morning and then go back. And then so it was one of those that I couldn't just sit and read cover to cover. Mm -hmm. It took me longer to understand it at that level. But that's kind of what I think of my podcast is like Atlas of the Heart meets The Body Keeps the Score with some of my magic sprinkled in there. Yeah, that's good. It's a good pitch. Mm -hmm.
0: So you were already doing the podcast.
1: yes. And how far into
0: the podcast were you when you discovered you were donor conceived?
1: I had discovered actually before I started the podcast. Oh, okay. Okay. And I knew I've been working through the emotions of Atlas of the Heart, like kind of in the order of the book she presents it, how Brene Brown presents it. And so I knew I kept feeling like, hmm, When I get to betrayal, that's the one, like that's the emotion. But what really happened was I haven't even got to betrayal. I'm only like on chapter three because I've just been like taking my time with this. But I started to get the feeling in April, this past April, that the time was now That I was ready to share my story. And then once I found out, you know, started seeing like, oh, it's International Donor Conception Awareness Day, I was like, okay, I'm going to share it that week. And so that was when I chose to share it. But I actually started to piece things out. The first little seedling I had was four years ago. Okay. Do you want me to dive in? Walk me through it. What happened four years ago? (laughs) Okay. So I have been struggling to conceive and I have just been on a journey of my own fertility and IVF and being somebody who's very holistic and also having had medical trauma in the past like there was a lot of reasons why it took me a while to actually go for help in the fertility community and so I was doing my first retrieval And when you do a retrieval, you're under anesthesia. My husband switches back between nights and days when he works. And he happened to be, it's based on your own schedule. It's based on your body's cycle. right? So you can't really control those things. So it fell when he was working nights. And so he brought me to the clinic, got me set up. He'd been working all night, just came home, got me and brought me there. And then my mom was going to, pick me up from the procedure and drive me home because of the anesthesia you can't drive home after. So you can't drive yourself home. So we get in the car and I mean, I walk out of the, the procedure room and they let you dress yourself. I put my sweater on backwards and inside out. Like, this is the kind of state I just share this because like, this is the mental state that I was in. This is why you can't drive. Yeah, this is why you cannot operate a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so I find my way to my mom's car. I get into her car and I'm out. I am spaced out, completely spaced out driving home. And she says to me at this point, I've already Mm -hmm. been through multiple IUIs you know, I've been in the fertility world for a few years at this point, I think two years, and never had she ever said one word to me about, you know, your dad and I struggled to conceive. Never mentioned it. Never. And so she so just was like, yeah, never. Right. And this is the power of shame. What I've what I understand shame to be is The desire to keep this a secret because of, you know, shame needs secrecy and judgment to thrive. And so my mom's shame was bigger than her desire to connect with me, which is hard. Like, that's really a really hard thing. And so she mentions, you know, oh, your dad and I did an IUI. And I, I mean, I'm so out of it. I, she gets me home, puts me into bed. And then the next day, I think I like remember this sentence happening at some point and I wasn't able to respond. Just in
0: case anybody doesn't know, what does IUI stand for?
1: So IUI is when the, um, If it is in in a heterosexual relationship, you know, or a sperm donor, in that case, it's when the sperm is inseminated in the woman and it is different than IVF. IVF is a retrieval of the follicles, which then are the eggs, and then get combined with the sperm, which then makes it an embryo. So IUI, very often for insurances, that's like the first step that they will recommend that you do. And so the next day, I've been in the fertility world long enough that I am like, something is here, right? Where yeah. I know my my chances in 20, you know, 20, 2021, of an IUI working with my partner's sperm is like a 20% chance. Like, honestly, I would have never even done it if it wasn't for insurance, being like, this is the first thing you have to do. So I knew this information. So even though she'd never said, like, your donor conceived, anything like this. And I sat on it for one year. I Whoa. sat on this sentence for one year, just going back and forth and back and forth. You never followed up with her at all about
0: it. Like any sort of just like, hey, touching, like touching. Yeah, ba-. we
1: don't talk. We don't talk. The reason I host a podcast called Emotional Expedition is because I've had to learn as an adult how to talk about emotions. So I grew up in a family where we just don't talk about your emotions. So if this was true, though, Mm -hmm. if this was true, it would mean I would be breaking my own heart. I had to wait until I was brave enough to break my own heart. Mm. My dad died when I was 5 years old and I was the world to him and he was the world to me and I have spent my whole life trying to stay connected to him in whatever ways that meant so I spent you know this one year just alone thinking about what this would mean all of the times where it's like oh You must, you sweat a lot. You must be a Thomas. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. you like to eat cheese. You must be a Thomas. Like, my dad died when I was five. So, anything I could grasp onto, I did. And in order for, I mean, this is the biggest heartbreak I've ever had to experience in my life where it was to sever that connection cool. of uh-huh. what that meant to be connected to him by blood and not just at this point in a spiritual sense. And yeah, and so a year later, I was about to go into another fertility procedure and I, who knows why it was the, that, you know, it was one week before this surgery that I was to have and i had the courage and i called her and i paced and paced around my living room until i finally said i just need you to tell me is dad my biological dad and she said no Mm. and of so many stories that i've heard i am so grateful she told me the truth in that moment like i i know now um I've heard many stories where that's not always the case. And so I am grateful for that moment of like, yeah, what you, what you suspected is true. How long did you stay on the phone with her
0: after she said no?
1: Mm, Only, it took me about 47 minutes to, uh, get the courage to ask the question, which was a very unusually long conversation for me on the phone with her. And after it was probably two things happened. First was the only questions that had come to mind um, were, is my dad my biological dad? I didn't know how many other boxes it was going to open for me. Like, who knew, you know, did who in the family knew and, you know, all of those kind of moments.
0: When you say you don't know, did you suspect boxes would open, but you didn't know how many, or do you mean you didn't know boxes would open?
1: I think my mind protected me for one year. The only question that was just like over and over is, is dad your biological dad? And a part of me already knew that once that seed was planted, I knew the chances were so slim. Were absolutely so slim. And so at, at the after was probably 5 minutes because um my mom is like a rock star at, you know, financially helping me with anything about physically if I had to flee my house or the country in the middle of the night, like she'd be there and figure it out and but what I have learned is she cannot hold me emotionally. And I knew in that moment my heart was breaking, and I knew that she wasn't a safe space for that, and that I had to get off the phone, so yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. that's a really eloquent description of of what that experience could be and what it means to people to find out they're not blood related. And I think you have the added poignancy of having lost your dad, which doesn't mean that it's um worse or more but it certainly drives home the point yeah I think in a in a way that is like the illustration of that of how important these things are the truth is how important the truth is really like really drives it home
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: now it doesn't matter why you like cheese you know (laughs)
1: exactly I think it's a human thing Mm -hmm. yeah right yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. and so I spent that next I spent the next like year and a half with just, you know, a close inner circle of knowing I got myself back in therapy at that time. And I went through so much grief. Like I, I grieved my dad all over again. And I didn't even know that that was possible. And my family you know, like my mom and my aunt, like, it was just like, I don't understand why this is a big deal. Like just get over it already. Cause I, I even had to like step back from my mom because it was like, there was never, we never talked about it again. And it was uncomfortable to bring it up or try to be like, I'm struggling here. And, and so it was just like, people were telling me to just, nothing has changed. Right. And, It wasn't until in that year and a half period of grieving and doing this really inner work, I heard a podcast with Danny Shapiro and I was like, Permission granted. Right. Like that is how (laughs) I feel. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. understand. Like I was like, what? Everyone's telling me this isn't a big deal. Everyone's telling me nothing has changed. Everyone's telling me my dad is still my dad, my, you know, half sister and half brother, who now are my stepsister and stepbrother. Like nothing's changed. Right. It's like, but at the same time, I felt nothing had changed. My dad is my dad and will always be my dad. But this other part of me had changed and it was okay that I was feeling that. And so I immediately, you know, listened to everything I could with Danny Shapiro and read Inheritance. And I just felt seen in a way that I hadn't felt yet on the journey. And, It's also a part of how I ended up creating my own podcast was because I just wanted other people to not feel so alone, not in relation just to be donor conceived in that way, but in relation to learning as an adult, how to label and identify and know what it is we're feeling. Absolutely. I also
0: come from a place of like mm, emotional, vocabulary, Mm -hmm. learning (laughs) emotional, like an emotional vocabulary deficit is, you know, where I I think. And that was something I didn't know until I was in therapy with my daughter. She was actually in therapy, my older one. And her therapist had a session with me and she kept asking me to describe things. Mm -hmm. And to me, it felt like I was describing them but she mentioned like, okay, so, it, you know, nicely and something, but it was like, so emotional vocabulary could be something that we were, I could come up with like, I felt weird. It was weird. I, I remember. I specifically remember yes. that word coming up a lot in my descriptions. And so that's become like a goal of mine as well as to, to learn about words for emotion and
1: Atlas of the heart, mm-hmm. Atlas of the heart. That's the best book for it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's so good. And It's just so good to know. And I I give all my like my writing classes all they all get an emotion wheel. And anytime I'm anywhere where there's a check in, you need to be able to identify an emotion. Mm -hmm. We always debate whether tired is an
1: emotion. Um, (laughs) I would say I argue no. It's, I mean, it's not in Brene's list of emotions, but I could see, I can see how it feels that we know what it feels like. To, if you say I'm tired, you know yeah. what that feels like. Well, in and your semantically,
0: body. I feel fill in the blank. I feel tired yes. is the correct sentence. And so yes. whenever it's, gets brought up and someone says that, I'm always like, Mm-mm. <laughs> let's go I, deeper. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, so that is really interesting. And with your Thomas side of the family, your paternal side, had you maintained a relationship with them your whole your whole life?
1: hmm.
0: Yeah. So this was a dis- this was a genetic disconnect to to a, yes. a legacy
1: of people, not just yes. this man yeah. from when you were mm-hmm. five. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And. And I'm so grateful for that conversation. I was nervous to, they don't, they, they live out in Cape Cod and I had a zoom call with them to tell them and they're, you know, quite a few years older than I am. And your sibling,
0: it was your siblings or your,
1: yeah, my half sister and half brother, who then became the stepsister and stepbrother. And they were like, oh, Yeah, Meg, like nothing's changed. Like, okay. Like, you know, like they were so, I was so nervous to have that conversation. But then it was like, of course, well, you know, almost 40 years of my life is not based on just blood. Like, right. So, Yeah. And, and they didn't know. And so my mom's side of the family all knew like my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, and even my stepdad who came in later in the game. And it's like, oh, so like, you know, those are the moments that are hard. Like he had more of a right to know than I did. Mm. And I understand having a, a better understanding. A part of my process was learning more about this journey of what it was like in the early 80s. I was born in 1983, so I was conceived in 1982, and what that looked like in a small town in you know, rural New Hampshire. And so I've gotten some information about how that process was, and understanding why my mom and dad made the choice to not tell me. And but at some point, like at some point, I believe that I I had a right to know. And so, you know, I wish I wish my mom had told me and I wish I didn't find out the way that I did. Sure. But, you know, what was um, a little bit woo, which I know you can go there after
0: listening to your podcast. A hundred percent. Give it to me. Give me all the cosmic magic.
1: An astrologer about maybe a year prior to me hearing that sentence from my mom said and I have it recorded because I had recorded this session with him and within the first five minutes of having this session with this astrologer he said hmm oh you were born on a full moon in Scorpio and there's a family secret surrounding your birth and you will be the one to uncover it
0: what yes yes Hold on, I gotta like scrape my goosebumps are like all over my body,
1: okay. (laughs) Oh yeah, and so I like, I went to my mom and, like, asked, like, little things of, like, what was going on with you and dad at that time? Like, so, mom,
0: Scorpio, full moon, talk to me. Like, what are you talking about?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, no, I did not say Scorpio, full moon, but I tried to, like, ask little, pulling at the threads, like, what was it like? How, you know, how did you feel around the time I was, you know, conceived and when you were pregnant? Was anything going on? And nothing. Nothing. Nothing.
0: Has she been able to talk about that in retrospect?
1: No, I don't even know if she remembers that moment. Yeah. I'm
0: like, get your mom
1: on the phone yeah. right now.
0: I need to know. I need to know if at the time she was going like shit, shit, shit. Here, you know, she knows. Um, or if she just was like, nope.
1: And and that's, you know, any insight you have on this as well because I know you you know this in a way. It's so many different stories than I have experienced, but My mom has not wanted to be a part of the healing journey Mm -hmm. of this. Mm -hmm. And I think there's still her own shame. I think this was a secret she didn't ever want uncovered. And then here she has me, this, you know, Gemini daughter with a Scorpio moon sign who's like, oh, yeah, well, not only am I somebody once I understand something new and if integrated i need to share it with the world
0: <laughs> yeah i can relate to, i can relate not i can relate to that pretty pretty like point for point
1: i'm sure you can
0: yeah my parents are like why why
1: why, why are you like this yeah mm-hmm. it's been for me i'm a coach for um women going through fertility treatments and how i feel about coaching women on that journey is these really challenging times can also be really pivotal moments of transformation and growth. And there's a part of me that's very sad that my mom really, this could have been a beautiful moment for us to go through this together. But I've felt very alone in the process of of going through my own healing and trying to understand what that looks like. And just like my fertility journey i have gone through the slow like at a turtle's pace and and that's what's right for me and so after probably a year and a half of that grieving process last july so a year ago i put myself in 23 and me and so I can imagine it's pretty jarring for the people that find out via 23andMe and don't have any of that processing and integration time because at that time I I had an idea you're probably opening the door to other siblings that you've never known about. I had that experience like when I did
0: um there's an episode I do with Jules Dixon Jackson um from uh, Cut Off Jeans and and I had, I knew, I already knew. Like I'm way into my journey. And then I did ancestry with her, and to see my bio dad at the top of that, you know, list mm-hmm. to suddenly get like a new level of understanding of what the DNA test shock is like. Like the mm-hmm. the people, the doing it for fun. Like I had a whole. It was it was really like. I, speaking of an o- emotional vocabulary, I'm not sure I have the words for what kind of. Um, trip it was like it was weird um it but <laughs> like it was uh it was it was very overwhelming I could feel my understanding like drop I could feel like a, a heaviness and a depth of my experience with the community drop like sort of sink sink in a little bit of like oh there he is his face was there um yeah, yeah. really really wild so mm-hmm. I so I feel you that it's a little bit different to know but wow what a like peek into that kind of experience.
1: Yeah. I sat on that for a little bit too. I think I sat probably two weeks on having the connections there, but not hitting connect with anyone. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it was like, and I think this is okay. Like if you, if you're listening to this and you're on your journey and you have moments of pause, that's okay. Like Mm -hmm. you can allow yourself that space to integrate more fully and then go to the next step or the next phase and like you said for so many of us that just find out just directly 23 and me that is a whole lot to find out at one time because for me I was much more open to the idea of siblings than I was that this donor existed in my mind isn't that interesting Oh my gosh, the story I created. So the day I got the twenty three and Me, I was a hundred percent convinced he was dead. There was no way that this man was still alive, and so that was one of the stories I created to protect myself. Right, that was just a narrative that worked for you. That I was, was like, okay, like I'm 18. open. Mm-hmm. I'm open to finding siblings, but I am not open to him being alive and my dad being dead
0: there's really something about a five-year-old girl having lost mm-hmm. her dad being like, no, I lost my dad. And so mm-hmm. there's no other dad. Like you yeah. can just see that part of your mind, just it's like, m- making that make sense. Like the, you know, your inner, inner five-year-old that lost her dad. Like that is, you know, I have a, I have my daughter just turned four and my other guy's seven. Like I,
1: mm. I,
0: I'm very familiar with like what a five-year-old, how five-year-olds Think. process. And you can just see her inside you right now, just saying like, nope, that doesn't, that doesn't
1: make sense. Like, but he died. Dads die when you're five. And I, and also with siblings, you can have more than one sibling in your life. And so the idea that there were more siblings, I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm okay with that. My biggest fear was there were too many of us. I don't know what the number too many was, but in my mind, my, my biggest fear going into 23 and Me was like, there's going to be a hundred of us. How many is there? And what is too many? But it f- so it didn't feel like it was taking anything away from the siblings I already have by gaining more siblings but if this man was alive and existed and he's a real person according to Instagram like <laughs> then that feels like it's taking something away from my dad mm-hmm. which it isn't it mm-hmm. isn't but it feels that way of like okay like and you're here and my dad's not mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah it was yeah. really i mm-hmm.
0: don't i don't feel that way as um as, as directly as you, because my, the man that raised me is still alive, <laughs> but I have, there is something, there is like a special kind of pain about when I open those 23andMe and Ancestry.com and he's not on there. There's a, yes. there's a void.
1: I kept looking
0: for his name. Yeah. yeah I, like let it be wrong. <laughs> I have other small things that I really connect with as far as being like, oh, that's from my dad. And I still mm-hmm. think that and then go, nope no, it is not. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's the, it's the void that becomes painful.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a good way of the void. Yeah. Of ex, of explaining that feeling and, and he wasn't in 23 and me, so um, I couldn't see him. I didn't know who he was and, or if he was alive, I did not find out that information until I connected with one of the siblings who um she was like I've got all the answers to all the questions you didn't even know that you have yet and I was like okay and it's our first phone call together and I was like I was ready to know about her but I wasn't ready to I I wasn't ready to know about him yet but she had done the detective work mm-hmm. so she was also donor conceived she was. And so there are five of us, including me in 23 and Me, um, And I've now I have met two of them. And in the last year, so I put myself in last July. And in the last year, I have met two of them and started to build relationships mm-hmm. with two of them and everyone else. I- I'm also very cognizant of everyone else is in their own journey and goes through this in their own way and so i am grateful to have had at least one person to connect through through this i i i feel deeply grateful for that cuz i think it would be harder to not have somebody at least i have somebody to be like okay this is what i'm feeling this is where i'm at and and for the first time it was like i've always been a leader mm-hmm. and it felt like they were like yeah we've already been here we've been waiting for you and we've got you like and they were so excited my half sister candace she her first that first phone call she was like i get so excited anytime there's somebody new in 23 and me and i was like i'm so i was so nervous about how many people were in there because i didn't want a lot i didn't want it to be one of those wild and big numbers, but it was, they were like 1980 and I was 1982. So back then it was, um, fresh sperm. Mm -hmm. And because I, I now am in the fertility world, fresh sperm, you only have like a, you know, 30 minute shelf life. Small window. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If we if we collect, you know, my husband's sperm at home, we can you can only live a certain amount of miles away from the clinic to get it there. And I like have to put the the cup, you know, skin to skin kind of situation Mm -hmm. to keep it warm and you get it there. And so so fresh sperm is not like it's their numbers are so much more limited. And then once they started switching, once they've evolved into frozen sperm, then it's like one vial can be separated so many times. And that's when the numbers started to really increase. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So in 1982, especially I would imagine in a rural place or in New Hampshire, you said there, it's not um, some of these, the, The when you hear about the serial donors or like the major donors, it's like, yeah, they lived right next door to a donation place in New York City that was open 24-7 or something It makes it seem more possible.
1: Okay. And these were, back then, it was medical students only. And lucky for, you know, there have been some moments where I was like, okay, all right, if this was to happen, there's some best case scenarios. It was an Ivy League college. It was Dartmouth Medical School. And so these men had to have been pretty smart to have gotten into the medical program And with it being fresh sperm, the numbers were lower as well. The odds were in your favor. Yeah. And then when I was 16, my lungs started spontaneously collapsing. And it was called like, they just labeled it like a spontaneous pneumothorax. I remember being in the hospital for the first time and they were like, Oh, well, I mean, we usually see this in tall, thin males. And I was like, Well, I'm a sixteen year old female, so I don't really know how this is helpful information. How tall are you? I am five seven. Okay, not that tall. So just average, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. And I you know, I was an athlete, so I was I was tall and thin, but nothing out of the ordinary. And I remember them saying, oh, you know, does anyone in your family have this? No, no one. I had never, had never experienced anyone else ever having this. I had surgery on that first lung at 16. And then it. I continued to have my lungs collapse. And then it started to almost be in concert with like my, um, menstrual cycle. Like I started to get pain in relation to the, the estrogen and uh, the different, um, the ride you go on with your hormones Mm -hmm. each month. I mean, that'll put a new twist on your PMS. Like I have a headache.
0: Oh yeah. My lungs
1: collapse. (laughs) Yeah. So I never had another like full collapse at the level where I needed surgery until I was 22 on the other lung. And so both of them now have staples in them and they can't really fully collapse anymore because they're like held by these staples. But it's something that has affected my whole life. Like it's still to this day, especially in relation to my menstrual cycle and trying to get pregnant and things like that. And no one's ever been able to tell me anything more about this like sure. it's just you know i go to a pulmonologist who's like yeah, i've never seen this in my entire career like it's just a very rare thing and it's affected my life in in many different ways throughout the years and so my first phone call well it was a text message it started out with my half brother andrew I texted, "Hey, I'm going to be, you know, out in Denver. He lives out in like Fort Collins, and I said, "Hey, I'm going to be in Denver in January for this conference and I love to ski, but I ha- I have to get there I have to get acclimated to the elevation change because it's a big change from where I live. So, I'll probably ski at the end of my trip, like where, you know, what do you recommend? Where do you go?" And he says, "Can wait a sec. Can I call you?" And I was like, "Yeah." Okay.
0: You're like, this is going to be really serious about skiing.
1: Yeah. Our first phone call, he says, tell me about your lungs. And I started to tell him about how, when it started happening. And he said, mine started when I was 17 and he had never met another human that had this. And within one hour of getting off that phone call, my lens changed, like the lens at which I view the world changed. And I was able to Google this genetic disorder. I was able to pinpoint the actual gene it affects. And I was also able to read that it will be passed on. And so, somebody going through fertility treatments, this is like valuable information for me of using my own eggs. It will be passed on, and 40% of the time it will show up wow that's a lot and so those are the moments where it was like he and i were both going through the same exact thing in different parts of the country and never had a clue like never had a clue that that this effect you know this was a genetic thing
0: and i'm so glad you're both alive and well I think sometimes when people are bringing up medic- why medical history is important and full transparency and health records um, within the donor conceived community and and well all the DNA discovery community, but we sometimes bring up really um, like dramatic, terminal, fatal. We bring up the most dramatic illnesses, mm-hmm. genetic things that, and so. But yours is such an excellent example of why it doesn't have to be huntingtons or something which comes up a lot yeah it it can be it can be uh less terminal but still so important to someone's mm-hmm. history and understanding and wow what it would have been to have a connection with someone else at that time yeah right who who had who's experienced this and for children for future children wow yeah
1: good good head good heads up Good heads up. Right. Exactly. It's like, okay, well, do I want to use my own eggs? What does that look like? And and I'll be honest, like, the more I am in this donor-conceived world, oh, like, and I coach, you know, this is what I do, As I coach women going through fertility treatments. And I am, you know, wherever they are feeling called to i support them in that so i'm never there to shame them in any direction that they're choosing but i am there to offer like do do you want some more information about what this could look like and what it feels like for your child to start to have more and more siblings in the world and what's going on you know in relation to donor sperm and even donor embryos at this point and donor eggs is these numbers are real. Like these numbers are getting bigger and bigger. I went directly to the owner of the fertility clinic that I I go to and said, like, how are we regulated? And he said, we make that as an internal decision within our clinic. And there is no, you know, New York state or federal regulation. You know, there's bits and pieces that are starting to come, which are still not near where they need to be. But as a clinic, like they create their own code of ethics.
0: Cool life. Cool life. We can all just create our own code of ethics.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want people to be empowered by their decisions and to understand it. I recently was hosting a retreat. I was co-hosting a retreat, like a day retreat for single moms and single moms who have special needs. And I shared my story, which had I not come out publicly in April about my story, I don't know as if I'd be sharing my story, but now it, there's that freedom, too, because I have put it out there. And so I was sharing my story. Everybody leaves. The retreat day's over. And this one woman comes up to me after, and she's like, can I can I talk with you? And I said, absolutely. And so we sit down, and she said, my 16-year-old daughter just found out not from me, that she's donor conceived and she it was um it was an open process. So it was they were always going to find out at 18 and she was always going to tell her daughter at 18. But now, of course, like a family member or a friend said something. And so now she has this 16 year old who's just crushed and she had no resources, like no, oh like God. I don't know where to go and what to do right now. And I, I thought waiting till 18 was the right thing because I'd have more information at that time to give her. And I just sat with her and it was one of those moments like, this is why I'm telling my story because I can help you. I can show you, go listen to this podcast, read this, do this. Like, these are the things I wish my mom had done. You still have that chance. And I gave her my phone number and email and was like, either of you, like, call me anytime I can help. So. Isn't that
0: wild to think of this, this information is not secret, but it is so hard to find. And once you're holding it, um, mm-hmm. like how lovely and lucky and strange for that woman to have been in that situation. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, do you know, do you know anyone that happens to have all the resources? This is the work you and I are are called to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me more about your podcast. Do you have guests on your podcast, or um, yeah, or you talk the you you talk the most is what I was going to say. I talk the most. Do you talk? The I most? do. Do you do all the talking? I do. Eve, um, I talk the most. I do talk the, the most on your podcast.
1: <laughs> That's why I give myself every other week a solo episode, just so I can be the one mm-hmm. who talks the mm-hmm. most. <laughs> just remember, yeah. who's really important here? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah so then every other week it's it's either hearing people's stories or it's different healing modalities it's you know somatic breath work it is like eft tapping it is writing it's just different ways my goal with the podcast is there are thousands of ways of healing. None, you know, not all of these are gonna resonate, but just if one resonates, I hope you connect with it and do something with it. So if mm-hmm. tap if you hear a podcast about tapping and it really connects with you. So I just bring on all different types of healers or people with stories who want to share their story as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I I believe so deeply in the power of storytelling mm-hmm. and that. All we really want is to be seen. And so for me, that moment with Danny Shapiro, I was like, finally, someone is saying, yes, me too. Like, I Mm -hmm. feel that way too. Mm -hmm. And and I really, uh truly believe that's what you're doing. Like, this is now that I have more resources and know your podcast, it's like, that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And do you, have you
0: had anybody, uh, Thus far, in your storytelling, that has come with other DNA surprises.
1: Nope, I just, you know, I just launched my own story in mm-hmm. April, the end of April, and then um, a dear friend who was another podcaster who was adopted. I had she interviewed me and another woman. Um, with her, they adopt, they've adopted, they interviewed me, but she was an adoptee and so which was also a transracial adoptee mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so she was biracial and then adopted into another race so she had three different race identities happening and so she i had her come on after and mm-hmm. and talk about her identity journey and now it's something i am deeply into exploring more and more about identity in all different forms and mm-hmm. and what that what that really looks like and the repercussions of not standing in our identity, whether it's race or sexuality or DNA related. Mm -hmm. I think all of these have implications on the body. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent.
0: So have you become, um, have you sort of like become a, you know, a part of, um, any of the like donor conceived community
1: I'm not really I'm not really in any Facebook groups or anything. I've found, you know, a few people like yourself and Jana Rupnow uh, on Instagram and started being able to listen to podcasts and do a little more research in that way. It's I think I might have been in a, a Facebook group right in the beginning and it reminded me of s- some similar energies of the fertility uh, community type of open Facebook groups that can have a lot of different energies going on. And, and sometimes that can be too much for me. So I just, Mm -hmm. I kind Mm -hmm. of recognize that those don't always feel like the safest spaces for me. And I, and I'm so grateful. And I know there are many good ones out there and that people do get value out of them. And so I am very interested in knowing more about how we can make this because I think I come at it from somebody going through fertility treatments and knowing for myself that the desire to become pregnant is so big it's so big. And I really do believe that we need more education in these couples or these single mamas by choice. Like they there needs to be more education in what this really looks like and what the long-term experiences are and what the possibilities are, because I have clients that I'm coaching that have, you know bought sperm online had it right. delivered to their house like this these are things that are happening now is you mm-hmm. can literally order sperm online mm-hmm. and have it delivered <laughs> like and whether you use some form of inseminating it to yourself or bringing it somewhere to do i mean it's wild and so the ease at which these things can happen has gotten so- dramatically easier however the there's still a lack of transparency that exists around how well how many places is this being used so many clinics are now shipping sperm to other countries so it's like we're not even talking about the united states anymore we're talking about all of these other countries and we have places like Canada and Australia who, you know, theirs was based on this whole altruistic type of thing where you couldn't get paid to donate sperm. So then therefore there's only a handful of donors in their system. So what do they do? They buy it from other countries. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just reach out. Oh, yeah. No problem. So it's like, all of those kinds of things. And I don't believe we totally know all the emotional effects that it has. Mm -hmm. And with meeting these two siblings, there were things in me that made sense that have never made sense before. It was like my half-brother and I, like we just we look at the world in such a similar way. And I watch him like answer a question and he would answer it the same way I would answer it. And I was like, huh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. okay. And then we have been able to see through the power of (laughs) Instagram that our donor has three children as well. So there's eight of us of the eight of us so far that I can see five of us have been photographers. Wow. Like I'm not uh-huh. saying artists, yeah. I'm saying right. photographers. Like, how is that? That's so specific. Yeah, I built a wedding photography business for 13 years. That was the first business I ever built. My donor's son is a wedding photographer. One of his other sons is a photographer. And it's like, okay, so there's moments like that that are really powerful sense of belonging and just understanding yourself in a new way. And at the same time there's just other moments that are really challenging of navigating this within your family because to me it has felt like my my half brother just came here with his family and my mom didn't want to meet them. And Ooh. those are moments that make me really sad where it's like it doesn't have like it doesn't have to be a pie meaning like my love is not a pie and if I give you one slice and I give this person one slice then it takes away there's less for you it's that's not the world I live in Mm -hmm. that's not the world Mm -hmm. of scarcity like I live in the world of abundance which is as long as these people continue to add more to my life like they'll be a part of my life and It is adding something because I'm starting to understand parts of myself are being mirrored back to me that I've never seen. And so, no, I'm not ready to reach out to the donor yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that will be my next step at some point. But that one is a much harder step for me. Mm -hmm. And the initial feeling that I had was was anger towards him. And I didn't really understand, like, why am I feeling so angry? And people around me were saying, like, oh, he did this wonderful thing and, you know, g- gave our, our family this opportunity. And it's like, yeah, but there was so much anger. And I and I think a lot of it came from that place of he gets to be alive and my dad's not here. And so I think it was triggering a lot of my mm. own unprocessed grief and In those moments. And now I have moved because I also believe in ancestral healing and healing the body. And so I no longer refer to him as the donor. Like I I refer to him by his first name, which um, by some twist of irony is Thomas. And so that was a challenge. I was like, really, of all the names you're making me get comfortable with is like to the point, like when I got married, I didn't take my husband's name. That's how much I wanted to stay connected to my dad. Yeah. Nope. This, my last name is not my husband's last name. Mm -hmm. Like Thomas tried, Thomas tried and true. I made that right. I just made that decision, you know, 13 years ago when I got married, when I got married and never knew that I'd be in this place and learning to have this acceptance and for this man, Thomas, who gave me life and gave me a lot of really amazing qualities I have about myself. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What a journey. Yeah. Yeah, it's so important to remember everybody's working through it at their own pace. And mm-hmm. and even the online support groups, people are coming in at, at different places in their own journey with their own experience of emotions.
1: Um mm-hmm. and so- I'd love your opinion on this. I think I think what I get hung up about on those on some of the energy of that is we can choose to let this be a moment of transformation or we can stay stuck as a victim and I think that's what I get really turned off by like the people that are, are choosing to stay stuck in that victim loop. It, do you notice that? as oh, well? Oh, I absolutely noticed that. I
0: noticed that. And, and um, yeah, I try to keep like my heart open to, to people who know, not don't know anything else except like black or white thinking, you
1: mm-hmm. know?
0: And, um, mm-hmm. but that can be, but that can be alienating to, to people coming in um, looking for, for, for different perspective and, and, and empathy from different experiences. So remind me again of your, the name of your podcast.
1: Let's let, make sure everybody hears it. Yep. It's the emotional expedition with Megan Thomas
0: and it's available everywhere. Everywhere podcasts are heard
1: everywhere. Everywhere podcasts are heard. And do you have a website or an Instagram people could connect with you? Yep, it's uh, at emotional underscore expedition, and my website is meganthomas.com, or I also own emotionalexpedition.com as well. So they all go to the same place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mind you, too. You know, you know the drill. (laughs) I do.
0: (laughs) I do. do. Yeah, excellent, 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 excellent. Was there anything else that I should have asked you or touched base about? You Mm. think that was really wonderful? I can't, I hope that you keep in touch with, I hope you, you know, keep in. Touch with me, or you know, keep in communication with like your own journey and what if you do reach out to your donor and what it's like. Yeah, I will. Yeah, you're you're an interesting. I don't want to say like case study, like I'm looking at you under a microscope. (laughs) I guess it's kind of like you're moving through this at your own pace, the way that you want, and you're someone that has worked on getting to know yourself and being comfortable with that, and working with your intuition. Those in tandem Mm -hmm. can work really well for for sort of a quest (laughs) because a a single person's quest, yeah, which is which is is you know it's fairly unique. Not everybody can do that. Thank you. So keep me posted.
1: I will. Thank you. And I just I'm really really grateful for you and what you're doing for this community.
0: Oh my gosh! I'm I mean
1: it was just so cool. It was just
0: so great to have you. I'm so glad you said. I'm so glad you had that moment of just do it now.
1: I was like, okay. And you just responded, yes, yes, yes. I was like, okay. All right, universe. All right, we're yeah. in. It was so great talking to you, Meg. I'm so glad that happened so fast. Thank you, Eve. So nice. I want to meet you in person. Yeah, like, let's I'm do like, it. I'm like, you are my people. Oh, so. let's do it. Yeah, yeah, I
0: feel it. I feel it really
1: good. Yeah. I feel it really All good. Right. Me <laughs> too, me too. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. All right, bye. All right, have a great rest of your day, Meg. You too. Meg's podcast uh, really does sound fantastic. I am a huge fan of Brené Brown. And I believe that High Hope & Healing Book Club is doing Atlas of the Heart right now. So it feels like this podcast, um, Meg's podcast, and that book club could be a really cool companion piece. Are you a part of Everything's Relative Podcast in all the ways that you could be? Are you following me on the socials at Everything's Relative Podcast? Have you visited the website to check out the massive collection of resources I've accrued over time? It's www.everythingsrelativetpodcast.com. Are you enjoying yourself or hate listening because you've already subscribed? Oh, time for a review of the week. I'm so glad you asked for it. This person wrote one long sentence. Absolutely love Eve and her podcast. Thank you, Eve, for doing the podcast. Well, thank you, person. taking 45 seconds to write that friendly and enthusiastic review i dare you listeners to write one better than that anyway okay i'll be back next week for sure because i have so many guests in the next four weeks uh that i'll be trying to hammer these puppies out quickly (laughs) so i don't drown um so come back i will be here we're gonna go way past 100 episodes um but we're close we're close to the 100th i'm very excited in the meantime try some cucumbers in your smoothies Think about what you can do to help global warming. Feed the cat. This is Everything's Relative Podcast. I'm Eve Sturgis. Bye-bye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Caelan Egan and edited by Joy Rumor. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions.